This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 408th episode, we have a whole bunch of news, including an awesome new huge theropod from South America, which is way more complete than just one vertebra. It's got tons of, it's like the most complete of its category. This is a callback to last week. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is such a cool dinosaur. I'm very excited to talk about it. And I know you have a bunch of news as well, because there's so much to catch up on. Oh, yeah. This is going to take many episodes. Yes. And then we also have Dinosaur of the Day, Zapalosaurus. And you took over the fun fact again. I miss doing the fun facts. You can never let me do another fun fact. Yeah, eventually, but (laughs) there's a lot of cool news right now and a lot of cool fun facts. Okay. All right. I I guess it's okay. (laughs) But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And as promised last week, we have a lot of new patrons to thank because a lot of people joined while we were away, which is amazing. So first up, we've got Leo, who is a new patron and has a birthday coming up. Happy, so happy birthday. birthday. Then we also have Resident Zeno, which is a combination of Resident Evil and the Xenomorph from the Alien franchise, which is a pretty awesome name. That Xenomorph thing is so cool. They always remind me of Moray eels with their mouth inside a mouth craziness anyway that's too much to get into right now then there's quadrosaurus who is a bodybuilder who used to go by quadrosaurus reps which is like my favorite thing ever that's yeah, an amazing name yeah <laughs> it's so great for a bodybuilder with good legs quadrosaurus reps it's perfect uh, yeah, I, there's nothing you could improve on there and then there's elijah whose mom joined and gifted him her shout out and i think she deserves a hug for a thank you Just like I would like to say. Same with Leo, because his mom also joined and we're saying happy birthday to him on her behalf. Good point. Yeah. Hugs all around. Then there's Brosis Girl. And they said, quote, Brosis is my stuffed brontosaurus who has been my loyal companion for 65 years, end quote, which is awesome. And they shared a picture of Brosis on our Patreon too, which is really cool. There's also Codosaurus Cohen who joined recently. It's a nice alliteration. It is. Also, Debbie joined. Thank you very much. And last but not least of our new patrons is Fog Knight, who recently upgraded to the Triceratops ad-free level, was a patron before that for at least a year or two, I think. So thank you very much for increasing your pledge to a shout-out level. Thank you. And then we just have two more shout-outs of patrons who are continuing to support us and they are vincentrosaurus and shelby so thank you both very much again we do like a random drawing of 
to round out the 10 shout outs. So yes, you never know when you're going to get another shout out. You just have to keep listening to find out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but yeah, seriously, thank you everybody for joining and for all of your support to keep this show going. Yes. It was really nice when we were on leave and we occasionally checked our email and we would see these little so-and-so joined on your Patreon. It was super cool. Jumping into the news. Tell me about this dinosaur you're so excited about. Oh, it's so cool. So first of all, I just got to get, a, you know, the, the basics out of the way. Sure. The business part. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was written by Juan I. Canale and others and published in Current Biology, and it is so cool. So it's this new dinosaur, which was found in Patagonia, specifically the Nuken province, and in the Huinkul formation. I never know quite how to say that. Mm -hmm. But it's the same formation as lots of really awesome dinosaurs. Three of the best-known dinosaurs from that formation are the Titanosaur Argentinosaurus. Oh, yeah. That was big news. Oh, yeah. Uh, for long ago. Big news about a big dinosaur is well known as one of the heaviest sauropods and therefore heaviest land animals of all time. Pretty cool. There's also Scorpio Venator and a Bellosaurid with extremely tiny arms. We found at least part of the arm, so we can tell that it's very small, yeah. too. I love it when there are these animals that have weird features and you find that feature of it because a lot of times it's just inferred from similar weird relatives, so it's always good. And by the way, it's called Scorpio Venator because the paleontologists had to deal with a ton of scorpions crawling around the excavation Ooh, that when they were getting it out. You might have mentioned that when it was Dinosaur the Day a while back, but I did not remember that was why it was the scorpion hunter. And then there's also Gualicho, which is often compared to Tyrannosaurus because of its small, basically two-fingered arms. And because of that, I had actually over the years gotten confused and thought that it was a Tyrannosauroid. But it actually was most likely a Carcharodontosaurid, as evidenced by its head, that looks a lot like an Allosaurus hmm. and other features as well, of course. That formation and all of those dinosaurs lived about very roughly 90 to 100 million years ago. Some of them we have more precise dates, but that's the general time period. At the middle of the Cretaceous, essentially, or the very beginning of the late Cretaceous, if you want to do it that way. It's when the dinosaurs were getting pretty big. Yes, at least some of the theropods were. And it's also sort of the end of the Carcharodontosaurid, or more generally the Allosauroid lineage. They went completely extinct, as far as we know, after 90 or 89 million years ago. And maybe gave rise to the Tyrannosaurs. Possibly, yes. This new dinosaur is the most complete Carcharodontosaurid from the Southern Hemisphere, so along with Gualicho, I think there's another Carcharodontosaurid or two in that formation. They were pretty diverse <laughs> in Gondwana during the Cretaceous. And then just a again, reminder that Carcharodontosaurids are a subgroup of Allosauroids. So most Carcharodontosaurids look roughly like an extra large Allosaurus with arms that are proportionally smaller than Allosaurus, but larger than a T-Rex. Hmm. That's usually how they're depicted. Although, I will say this new paper will probably change that depiction of their arms. Oh. Yes. Intrigue. Yeah. The new dinosaur is named Meraxes gigas, or gigas. The species name gigas is Greek for giant, and they say they named it that because, quote, referring to the enormous size of the species. All right, now we're getting into it. So, it's so an, we know it's big. It's big. It's a carcharodontosaurid. It was very complete. 
The genus name Meraxes is, quote, after a dragon of the Song of Ice and Fire fiction series by George R.R. R. Martin, end quote. So if you watched the series, maybe you recognize that as soon as Garrett said it. Maybe. Or read it, the series, I should say. So Meraxes, I had to go down a little bit of a, you know, Song of Ice and Fire dragon Erictodromius burrow mm-hmm. just to figure out exactly why they might have named it Meraxes because they didn't explain in the paper. Sure. So why did they? I didn't really get an answer, but I learned some cool things about Meraxes that I want to share. All right. <laughs> so the dragon Meraxes in the Game of Thrones world was named after a Valerian god. Hmm. That was So it's like the etymology of the etymology since that was where that the- That is a rich world that George R. R. Martin created. Yes. Although I don't think it's ever been specified what that Valerian god Meraxes represented Mm. so we know it's a valerian god but we don't know if it's like you know the god of war the god of whatever right what's that god's backstory yeah we need that level of you know we need to go one layer deeper so (laughs) and then we'll know what this dinosaur was named after so meraxes is described as a female dragon the dragon in game of thrones a female dragon with silver scales and golden eyes Mm. which is pretty cool Mm mm-hmm There's a whole bunch of stories about it. There are some backstory books to Game of Thrones that were written. And one of them describes basically this dragon and like groups of warriors just immediately surrendering to it because it looks so imposing with those silver scales and golden eyes and potentially like golden flame fire too, I heard one person say. Hmm. So pretty cool. It was written by Rhaenys Targaryen. Not to be confused with, what is it, Rhaenyra in the new series, I think? Oh, okay. This is a different one. Rhaenys was one of the sister wives of Aegon back in the really early days of the mythology and was a really big part of Aegon's conquest of Westeros. So it was basically him and his two sister wives. All three of them had their own dragon each. And the Aegon's dragon was Balerion, which is the biggest dragon. Mm-hmm. I remember that one. I think they show the skull in the basement a few times, and it was, you know, it was known as being the biggest dragon. So it comes up from time to time. And then the other two were female dragons, but Meraxes was the bigger one. Hmm. So maybe that was partly why they picked it, because it was the bigger of the female dragons. Maybe also because they wanted to pick a female dragon. I don't know. Unfortunately, the dragon Meraxes was killed while trying to conquer Dorne. Hmm. specifically the dragon was shot by a scorpion bolt with those giant crossbow things mm-hmm. and then fell down and you know it was sort of like a mystery of where it landed and what exactly happened was there some pathology on this dinosaur maybe that's how they came up with the name not that they mentioned oh, okay i believe the mythology was it got shot in the eye the dragon yeah. yes by the scorpion bolt so yeah but there wasn't anything that they said about its eye being weird or anything so okay. i don't think that's related to it I'm not sure why they didn't go with Balerion, since that's that's the significantly larger dragon and they named the species Gigas. Seems mm-hmm. like what you would go with. But it could be because a small lizard was given the species name Balerion in 2019, also in Argentina. I was going to guess, what if there's another paper that's under wraps of something even bigger and they named them around the same time? Ooh, yeah, that's a good guess. It could be. But you never know. Yeah. This one is kind of funny because I was looking up, trying to find if there were any animals named Balerion, and then I found this lizard, and it is alive today, so it has that going for it, 
but it's it's like you know the size of a gecko kind of thing hmm. compared to this massive carcarotontosaurid, which is named after a smaller dragon. It just seems kind of funny. Maybe it's a big wizard for its ecosystem. It could be, yeah, I guess. But this Meraxes is such a cool dinosaur. Now we're we're going back to the dinosaur. Okay, because that's all I all the interesting information I want to share about the George R. R. Martin Erectodromius burrow. So they found. Basically, all the best bits of Meraxes. What does that mean? They found most of the skull, although not the jaw. So like the upper part that's officially the skull. Mm -hmm. Almost all of both feet. Hmm. Actually, nearly all of the hind limbs in total from the hips and sacrum at the top down the legs to the toe claws and everything in between. That's cool. Yeah. They found a bunch of gastralia, probably about half of the tail vertebrae starting from the hips back. So a massive series there. And it Mm -hmm. looked like it was fairly articulated when they were excavating it too, especially the sacral vertebrae that were fused. It includes over a dozen complete vertebrae in the tail. And Mm. by complete, I mean like really complete. All the pieces sticking off the top and the sides and the big thing sticking off the bottom where the caudofemoralis muscle ran near is like a really good piece. And then there's also some other random pieces of rib fragments and pieces of neck vertebrae. But most importantly, there is a complete arm and about half of the hand. Hmm. So then we have a very good idea of what it looked like. Yeah. Yeah. Extremely good because you've got the head, you've got all the limbs, you've got a good chunk of the tail so you can do a good length estimate. Really, the only thing it's missing mostly is a lot of the neck and back vertebrae. But we kind of know what those would be like because we have such a good series of sacral and tail vertebrae. And we've got a lot of similar vertebrae from other relatives and stuff. Mm -hmm. Those are the easy gaps to fill in. The limbs and the skull are usually the parts where you're missing it and you're like, ah, now I don't really know what its face looked like. Or I can't really tell exactly how it would have behaved kind of thing. But yeah, some vertebrae, it's okay. Its arms, though, are really small. Just like Gualicho, Tyrannosaurids, and a whole bunch of Abelosaurids, they all seem to have these small arms. But unlike some of them, Meraxes seems to have had three fingers. Hmm. It looks a lot like a mini Allosaurus arm, I would say, if you think about like the three fingers of an Allosaurus arm. And also similar to Tyrannosaurus and Alvarosaurids, despite the fact that it had really small arms, they look like they were fairly robust and like the bones themselves were pretty sturdy mm-hmm. and they had some good muscle attachment points. They just look small because proportionally they're small. Yeah, and I mean, they are pretty small arms, but they just had some power to them, even Mm -hmm. though they're small, small but mighty arms, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) They think that this specimen was an adult in the supplemental material they show the EFS, which is when those growth rings get really close together, basically showing that it was stopped, stopping its growth. They counted about 22 to 25 lags. That's pretty old. Yes. And it's even older than that because a lot of the bone had been remodeled. So most of the early growth rings are missing. They estimate it was between 37 to 53 years old. Wow. Depending on which sort of S curve you give the growth. Because Carcharodontosaurus didn't grow super rapidly, not quite like Tyrannosaurus did. That's on the older end for a carnivorous non-avian dinosaur. Yeah. I, I think we covered an article maybe years ago at this point, showing that Carcharodontosaurs lived longer than pretty much any other theropod. Mm. So this, I think, is sort of backing that up as well. 
Was it the arms that <laughs> give him an advantage? I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of other large theropods with small arms too. That's true. Meraxes is considered to be in the gigantic class of theropods. What does that mean? They just said that arbitrarily, I think, maybe is over four tons, which is gigantic. That is gigantic. Fair to <laughs> fair claim. Based on the skeletal, it looks like it's about very roughly 10 meters long or about 30 feet long. So it's, it's big. Yeah, it is big. Over four tons. It has the most complete skull in the group of Carcharodontosaurinae, or a knee, if you want to pronounce it correctly, <laughs> which obviously includes Carcharodontosaurus and the closest relatives. But it is missing the tip of the snout, and they had to put it back together, so there are some error bars on the exact size and shape of it. But the total skull length is estimated to be 127 centimeters, or four foot two inches long. <laughs> Can you imagine coming across... Just a skull that big. It's insane. And the only things I can think of that have really long skulls today mm -hmm. are pretty narrow, you know, other than like whales and mm. things in the ocean. But like, you know, alligators have really long heads, for example. But I thought you're going to go the route of ceratopsians, like a triceratops, because those are also oh, yeah. very large. But not that much of it is mouth. This thing is like yeah. all hinged and oh. full of teeth. So can you imagine going up against that. I can i can imagine losing to it or getting eaten by it very quickly mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah it's crazy i think you know maybe that is part of the meraxes thing the surrendering aspect where the dragon showed up at a village or whatever mm -hmm. and the rider is like okay you know, I've got this dragon and they're just like, okay, yeah, you're in charge. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what they were thinking with this. But yeah, so a few centimeters longer basically is what that boils down to than the most complete Acrocanthosaurus and the estimate based on that. So hmm. Acrocanthosaurus is known to be a pretty big dinosaur and this is a little bit bigger than that. Yes. We don't have a good Giganotosaurus skull to compare it to. But using Meraxes as a template for Giganotosaurus, which is what they did, because basically, since it's such a complete skull, they were like, okay, now we can learn more about Giganotosaurus using Meraxes as a template for where the different bones should go and how big they might have been. So based on that, they think Giganotosaurus might have been roughly 162 centimeters of skull length. The error bars are a little bit big on that. Estimates, I think, before have ranged from basically a meter and a half to like 1.8 meters or 180 centimeters. Hmm. So that would put Giganotosaurus skull at roughly five foot four inches long, <laughs> which is <laughs> a very That's long so skull. Huge. Yeah. yeah. Obviously bigger than four foot two inches, but at that point it's like, is it the I difference mean, is kind of academic. That's bigger than a lot of people. Yes, definitely. I mean, bigger than half of women, right? Or tall because five foot four is the average woman's height. In the U.S. Meraxes has a long, low, and quote-unquote profusely ornamented skull. <laughs> Overall, basically a similar look to Acrocanthosaurus or Allosaurus. If you're not familiar with Acrocanthosaurus, they have generally pretty similar looking skulls. It also has an especially long second toe claw. And even though it's called the second toe claw, I always think that's a little bit confusing because the first toe claw is kind of a dew claw, you know, mm -hmm. like behind the foot, like a hallux kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's the innermost claw of the three facing forward. 
So it's in the place where our big toes are, basically. And that inner claw is nearly twice as long as the outer claw. <laughs> so usually when you see a theropod foot depicted, yeah. it's basically you've got the longest toe in the middle, and then you've got two even toes mm-hmm. on the sides. And that's still true here. The longest toe is still in the middle, and this, the two side toes are roughly around the same length. But there's a lot more claw on the inner one, and it is overall a little bit longer. So it gives it a little bit of an asymmetric foot, maybe vaguely like our foot with the big toe. So it's got a giant head, presumably very sharp teeth, even mm-hmm. though I, it sounds like the teeth weren't found. Well, they, they have them in the top, in the skull, oh, just okay. on the jaw on the bottom. So giant head, very sharp teeth, and very big claws. Yeah. Yeah. So the the foot itself, or maybe I should say the toe, its big toe <laughs> equivalent is about 44 centimeters or 17 inches long. And then the claw bone is about half of that. So, and it could have been much longer with the keratin sheath mm-hmm. over that. So you could have over a foot long of toe claw there. <laughs> and they also noted that that claw specifically was much sharper on the bottom than the other two. The other two were kind of rounded mm. as you usually see on toe claws because you're walking on them and you're not really using them to like stab things. But for some reason, this one had a sharp, more stabby or slicey big toe, which is such a weird thing. To th- it weighs four tons. How can it use a, f- a foot? It's bipedal, you know, like lifting up a leg to use that claw seems so weird. Well, I wonder if it could lift it up off the ground like a dromaeosaur. Maybe. I don't know. It seems so strange. It's also possible that it has to do with like a, you know, some sort of mating thing or oh, something like it needed to dig with it or something and it or could scratch into harder dirt. Show off that claw. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's just it's hard to know. Or yeah, maybe with competing with mates if they like kicked at each other, like hmm. leaping laylap style or something. I don't know. They didn't speculate on that. That's all just random ideas. But it is likely that Meraxes lived after Mapusaurus and before Giganotosaurus. They didn't go into like an anagenesis. This one evolved into that, evolved into that idea. But it does show that Carcharodontosaurids were very diverse in this time period. And again, that was shortly before they went extinct. Hmm. So they were sort of peaking in diversity right before they went extinct. It's weird that they went extinct then. Well, it, I think... That often happens with animals. It depends. Sometimes there's a slow decline and other times they get too specialized Mm. and then go extinct. There's a lot of ways you can go extinct, but that's how they went extinct at least. The big headline on most of the articles about this paper was essentially that this dinosaur is supporting the idea that lots of large theropods had very small arms and that it was sort of a consistent trend for dinosaurs that grew really big heads, mm-hmm. at least predators that grew big heads, to get small arms. And as they put it, it's convergent evolution of small arms in quote-unquote mega-predatory theropods. They reference three groups of belosaurids, tyrannosaurids, and now carcharodontosaurids. I always like to just think of allosauroids <laughs> instead of carcharodontosaurids, mm-hmm. but... They compared them all by looking at their forearm to femur ratio, and they all had very small ratio values for that. In other words, meaning that if you divide the size of the forearm by the size of the femur, there's not a lot of forearm on the numerator, so the number is small. Hmm. 
they also, of those three groups, converge to pretty similar proportions in that forearm to femur ratio. Basically, 0.4 seems to be about the limit of what they got down to. In other words, the forelimb was less than half the size of the femur, which is pretty small. And the small arm champ in their data set is still Carnotaurus. Hmm. Carnotaurus is my favorite tiny armed weirdo. I mean, we don't have nearly as large of heads and we rely on our arms for quite a bit of things. So yes, it yeah. makes sense that they're not so short. Yes, very good point. And they also point out that it's not just these mega predators that have this shrinking forelimb situation because alvarosaurids definitely don't count as mega predators mm -hmm. given that they're cat sized. Yeah. <laughs> basically, they do mention that even in Alvarosauridae, Mononychus and Limusaurus didn't pass that 0.4 forelimb to femur ratio. Hmm. So they surmised or hypothesized that it's possible there's some sort of evolutionary limit there on just how much you can shrink your forelimbs, which maybe, I mean, if there's, it's so hard to know, there could be some sort of genetic code that relates to how long the limbs are. Mm -hmm. And it might be hard to limit the forelimb length while maintaining those really long hind limbs, mm. at least on a relatively short time scale. They also point out that not all dinosaurs get larger heads and smaller hands as they grow, or maybe I should say smaller arms. They cite Gigantoraptor and our personal favorite, Dinochirus, because <laughs> they're pretty far down the evolutionary lineage but still have massive hands mm -hmm. to the point where on Gigantoraptor, they thought the huge claw that they found must have been a toe claw, but it turned out to be on a huge hand. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end, they essentially propose that large predators, which evolve large skulls, also evolve smaller arms at the same time. Hmm. And it holds across all the biggest theropod groups. So Another way you could put it is it's not really fair to pick on T-Rex for mm. having tiny arms because basically all of the huge predators were doing the same thing. Or another way of looking at it is instead of only having images of poor T-Rex not being able to reach things, people could expand. They should. Have yeah. a whole cast of characters. Well, I've, for a long time, I've thought, why is Carnotaurus not the one people make fun of? Its arms are so much funnier looking because they have like <laughs> little baby hands with like five fingers practically. It's just not as well known as Tyrannosaurus. Yeah. If you're going to make fun of something for having tiny hands, you got to go with an arms. You got to go with Carnotaurus, <laughs> especially like in the the recent Apple TV. What was that called? Prehistoric Planet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they had uh, Carnotaurus on there and it was showing like the underside of its arms. Mm -hmm. They were all, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's the one to make fun of. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to Meraxes. If you want to see Meraxes, I'm not sure if it's on display. I think it might be because it's such a cool specimen, but it's stored at the Ernesto Bachman Paleontological Museum in Nuquén, Argentina. Cool. There's a lot of cool stuff at that museum. That is definitely on a list that I want to get to. Mm -hmm. Someday. Yeah. It's a little out of the way, but I think totally worth it. <laughs> Some of the best dinosaur museums are. Yeah. And now we're going to take a really quick sponsor break. But when we get back, Sabrina's going to dive into a whole ton more news. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, 
where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Next up in the news... There were gastroliths and Deinonychus teeth found associated with April the Tenontosaurus. And we've talked about Tenontosaurus before. The one that's always getting eaten. Yeah, it was the dinosaur of the day in episode 376. And we talked a lot about how it's often found near Deinonychus. And it seems, well, it's usually, usually the depictions of Tenontosaurus are there's a bunch of Deinonychus clawing at it and eating it yeah Yeah. it's basically everyone's favorite food source in their drawings Mm. (laughs) not just drawings sculptures oh that's true we saw that sculpture in south korea it was a great sculpture it was very vicious a bunch of dynotic is just tearing into this poor tenontosaurus anyway this paper it was published in cretaceous research by john r nuds and others and Tenontosaurus, just as a quick reminder, it's an ornithopod. It looks kind of like Iguanodon. It's medium to large size with a broad, stiff tail. April, the Tenontosaurus, is an individual found in the Cloverleaf Formation in Montana in the U.S. It was found on private land in 1994 by a rancher, and it's currently at the University of Manchester Museum in the U.K. It was acquired in 1999. So these researchers, they use CT scans and x-rays And they found, quote, further evidence to support the long-standing assertion originally made by John Ostrom in 1970 that Tenontosaurus was a common food item for Deinonychus, end quote. So this is a Tenontosaurus, which is over in the UK? Yeah, Tenontosaurus that was found in Montana is now in the UK and 
they recently studied and figured out, yes, it was a prey animal to Deinonychus. How did they figure that out? Well, April, the Tenontosaurus is a subadult, a near-complete skeleton with a partial skull, and the skull is well-preserved and articulated. Originally, April was recorded as being found with two Deinonychus teeth, two cycad seeds, and at least 12 possible gastroliths. So in this study, they used the CT scans and x-rays to see if that's true. I see. So it's another, there were a bunch of teeth around this animal. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was getting chewed on. Maybe. <laughs> or more like they knew the teeth were associated with it, but what teeth did it belong to? Oh, okay. Whether or not it was Deinonychus or yeah. something else. And they confirmed the two shed Deinonychus teeth. They also found, well, the cycad seeds turned out to be a different type of seed plant, Bennett tails. They confirmed that the gastroliths were gastroliths, and that's pretty cool because gastroliths are rare in ornithopods. Hmm. They said only three unambiguous records of gastroliths in ornithopods have been reported specifically for the basal ornithopods Gasparinosaura, Heia, and Changmianya, end quote. This is also the second oldest occurrence of gastroliths in an ornithopod. So they concluded that this find represents, quote, one of the best documented examples of a trophic relationship, predator, prey, or scavenging, in the dinosaur fossil record, end quote. Interesting. Yeah. Because you see how the Tenontosaurus ate, there's the gastroliths and the seeds, and then the Deinonychus teeth, so it was going over <laughs> for the Tenontosaurus. Yeah, yeah, because usually you see the gastroliths and the herbivores. Mm-hmm. So... They're all together. Poor April. Yeah. That just shows that all that art about Tenontosaurus being attacked by Deinonychus is uh, probably right. probably accurate, yeah. The next news item, scientists looked at the growth of the smallest ornithopod. It's not yet named ornithopod. It's a rhabdodontomorph that lived in what is now Spain. That was published in Cretaceous Research by Paul Emile Diodon and others. So again, it's not yet named, this ornithopod. Is it going to be named? I don't think so. At least they didn't talk about that in the paper. It's kind of known as the Vegahete rhabdodontomorph. A rhabdodontomorph that means it's a basal iguanodont that is a group that includes rhabdodon and phostoria and zalmoxis and moclodon. And maybe the best known one is mudaburosaurus, which had that big bulky body and the long face and long tail. And Vegahete is in the northwestern part of the Camaros Basin. And the fossils were found in Burgos Province, Spain. There are at least six ornithopods of this type, all the oh, same wow. type. Yeah, different sizes. They were all lying in a small area of about one square meter. I'm surprised they don't have enough to name a new animal with all those individuals. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe there is another paper coming. They're thinking that these six ornithopods probably died during the same catastrophic event, which makes sense usually when you find a big group like that. Yeah, especially different sizes. That's, it seems like they might be in a group and then something happened to them. Yeah, and this type of ornithopod is also the earliest known rhabdodontomorph. So they're helping to show growth in basal iguanodonts. The fossils, well, the fossils are disarticulated and fragmentary, which oh. could be why. It's 
hard to know which bone goes with which one. They're all scrambled up. Well, they were able to figure out some of it. Because if you have like five of the same bone, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they were able to do histology, for example, on the femora and tibiae, the leg bones of five of the individuals. And they found that the largest individual was a late subadult, quote, making it the smallest ornithopod ever recovered, end quote. And the smallest individual was probably a neonate, a newborn. It's possible that this dinosaur could grow up to about 33 inches or 83 centimeters long. Oh, that is small. That's just based on the length of the femur of the largest one found. Yeah, I mean, but even if it could be bigger, it's probably not going to be... Much bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Well, And actually, it might be smaller than that because the authors think that it had a short tail. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> that is tiny. It's like, yeah, I think of that as like cat-sized. Mm-hmm. Maybe a very small dog. Yeah. <laughs> Now, none of the individuals that they studied showed lines of arrested growth, lags, at least in the bones that were studied. It could be that there are lags in other parts of the skeleton, is what the author said. They think that most likely this dinosaur would have reached sexual maturity after one year. Oh, jeez. And that could mean that they grew very fast and uninterrupted, which could be because of predators. Yep. Yeah. Although making it up to one meter long doesn't seem like that much of a defense but maybe they could run faster or something if yeah they quickly. something that would help them with those predators <laughs> and the authors looked at anatomical and micro anatomical features as well and they found that as a juvenile this type of dinosaur changed from walking on all fours being quadrupedal to walking on two legs being bipedal that's based on the tibia being longer than the femur in the two larger individuals and the proportions of the femur, as well as the shapes of the long bones, the arm bones, and some other details. And this is different from late Cretaceous rhabdodontids that stayed walking on all fours. They also did an interesting comparison where they looked at how other rhabdodonts walked, and they found like Mudaburosaurus, for example, was mostly quadrupedal, and sometimes it walked on two legs for short periods of time, probably to forage. Moglodon changed from walking on four legs to walking on two legs as it aged. Selmoxes walked on four legs. Rhabdodon was probably walking on four legs. And another one, Disaltosaurus, probably started walking on four legs and then grew up to walk on two legs. So they learned a lot from this dinosaur, even though it doesn't have a name. Yeah, seriously. It's a good example of just because it's not a new dinosaur, you can learn a lot from it. Oh, yeah. Like, you probably got a lot more scientific value, or we probably got a lot more scientific value out of this find than out of a few vertebrae or a, a partial jaw of some dinosaur that is unique enough to get a new name, but it's all that it adds is like, oh, yeah, there was this thing. <laughs> Moving on. I feel like they're all little puzzle pieces that fit into a bigger picture. They are. That's true, because if it's a new like group of dinosaurs, you find that jaw and you're like, oh, it's a new genera, and we mm -hmm. didn't even know that genera was in this ecosystem. That could still be really significant. Mm -hmm. Kind of like how we were talking last week, you're saying we're added in a bellosaurid to Stromer's riddle. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, even though it was just a vertebra, mm -hmm. it's very significant. So next up in the news, there's an opalized fossil that might be a new dinosaur species. Oh, cool. But we don't know enough yet. 
So paleontologists at Flinders University, along with the Australian Opal Center, are collaborating, and they're using a micro-CT scanner to remove the surrounding rock around the fossil and then 3D printing to reconstruct the skeleton. Or they're digitally removing the rock around the skeleton if they're CT scanning. Oh, I see. Yeah. So this is fossilized opal from over 100 million years ago of a hypsilophodont. And these fossils were found in 2019. They've scanned about 20% of the fossils so far. And just as a side note, the Australian Opal Center hosts an annual dinosaur fossil dig. They did one recently where they found some tiny fragments of bone and also a tiny yabby button. I had to look up what that means. And it's opalized gastroliths of freshwater crayfish. They're only found in Lightning Ridge in Australia. I had no idea that crayfish had gastroliths. I didn't either. It's supposed to be very small. <laughs> I also really like that they're called yabby buttons. That is pretty adorable. That's really cool. Yeah, those opalized dinosaur bones that we saw in Lightning Ridge are mm-hmm. some of the coolest dinosaur fossils we've ever seen. We got to hold some. That was amazing. Yes, very cool. Definitely recommended if you're ever in the outback. Well, in that part of the outback because yep. there's a lot of outback. <laughs> yeah, to check it out. It's really pretty. Yep. And they were working on a new museum. I'm not sure they the are exact status of that. Okay, that's I, good. Yeah, I don't know the status right now, but I know it's being worked on. Cool. Now, going back to, well, South America, but this also involves Europe, Ubi Rajara is being returned to Brazil. Da-da-da. Yeah. So Brazil won the battle. <laughs> yes. So Ubi Rajara, it was at the State Museum of Natural History, Karlsruhe in Germany. And the museum said that if they have things in their collections that, quote, were acquired under legally or ethically unacceptable conditions, we will return them, end quote. This is according to an article on science. There were some conflicting accounts of how Ubi Rajara ended up at the museum. Uh, One of the accounts said that it came in 1995, but another account said it was imported in 2006, and there's no documentation on the fossil acquisition or proof that it was imported before 2007, and that's when a German cultural protection law took effect, mm. which I think we talked about. That was one of the earlier statements was they weren't going to return it because of this law from 2007. Oh, and it was it was too recent. That's interesting that they're basing it only on the German law because <laughs> mm. the the complaint in Brazil was that it was exported illegally. And the German side, I guess, is saying like, well, since it might have been imported illegally, then I guess we'll return it. Well, I think there's been a lot of back and forth. Yeah, there definitely was. We saw a lot of it. Yeah. And that's just what we saw. I'm sure there was even more going mm-hmm. on. Now, one of the co-authors of the Ubi Rajara paper, which... Just as a reminder, that paper got retracted. It had those crazy feathers. Remember that? Like out of the shoulders. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were like, what is that? And then afterwards we were saying, well, maybe it was not as rigorously peer reviewed because some people didn't want to be associated with it since Uh... it wasn't necessarily, you know, ethically reported on. Hmm. Well, one of the co-authors who's also a paleontologist at the museum where Ubi Rajar was held, has since retired, and said that the controversy only involved him and not his co-author, who will be leaving the museum at the end of the month, but for reasons not related to Ubi Rajara. Interesting. Mm-hmm. The German state Baden-Württemberg 
which is the state where the museum is, is committed to returning cultural assets when appropriate. That's according to the science article. And the museum's going to look at whether other objects in their collections should be repatriated. They have more than 40 other fossils from Brazil. Now, Ubi Rajara may go to the National Museum in Rio de Janeiro, or maybe the Museo de Paleontologico Placido Cidade Nuvens, which is where the fossil was probably found. Hmm. I always vote for as close to the origin as possible. Yeah. Because then you can get those cool collections where it has all the stuff that was basically found together. Mm-hmm. It gives you a more complete picture of the ecosystem. Definitely. Plus, it's nice for the people living there to be able to see the stuff from their area. But they have to have the the means to actually store it and all that jazz. Yeah. That's usually the tricky thing. Which I think they do, but there's probably more conversations going on. That's cool that it's headed back, though. A mm-hmm. lot of people were beating the drum for that for quite a few months. Yeah. Or years, even. Uh, yeah, a couple of years. And now it's happening. Or it will be happening. <laughs> and some other news items we're catching up on. So back in May, Podocosaurus holiocensis became the official state dinosaur of Massachusetts. We've been talking about that one for a while. Back in February of 2021, people voted which dinosaur they wanted as the state dinosaur, and Podocosaurus won. But it took a while to become official. Yeah, I was thinking, I thought we talked about this a long time ago, but I guess it it's it finally got signed. They crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. Mm-hmm. And Podocosaurus holiocensis means swift-footed lizard of Holyoke. It was first found near Mount Holyoke in 1910 by Mignon Talbot, the, who's the first woman to describe and name a dinosaur. And it was a carnivore lived during the mid-Jurassic. Nice. Yep. So good choice, Massachusetts. Now, Delaware also has a state dinosaur, Dryptosaurus. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. I think this is official. The news I saw on it was that it passed in the Senate with 21 votes in June. So students at a middle school drafted the bill, and then they also made t-shirts that say, Delaware's dino got mad drip, D-R-Y-P. <laughs> and drip or dripping means that you're really cool for uh, those of us who are of a certain age or older. <laughs> I got that by context, but that's the first time I've ever heard that's like used. Yeah, same here. <laughs> Now, the Dryptosaur is on the shirt. It's wearing a bowler hat and sneakers and a gold chain with the letter D. So, yes, very... Very drippy. Drippy, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's how it's used. Representative Paul Bombach sponsored the bill and was the one who introduced the idea to the students after learning from some friends about Maryland's state dinosaur. I was like, well, why not Delaware? And the students worked with the Delaware Museum of Nature and Science to narrow down a list, and then they voted on Dryptosaurus. The reasons that they decided on Dryptosaurus, according to the House bill, was that there are fossils of it found in Delaware. That's a good idea. Yep. Good starting point. It's not another state's dinosaur, like Hadrosaurus, which was in the running for a while. Hadrosaurus was also found in Delaware, but it's New Jersey's dinosaur. I mean, it was originally found in New Jersey, so yeah, makes sense. Uh, Dryptosaurus was bird-like and likely had feathers, and Delaware's state bird is the blue hen chicken. So there's that connection. Wait, what? Yeah. It was bird-like and had feathers, and their state bird is the blue hen chicken? Yeah, so it's got a state bird, and then the dinosaur is kind of bird-like. So you got that connection. What is a blue hen chicken? How does that relate? It's just because Delaware has a state bird, and now they have a state dinosaur. Oh, I see. I think every state has a state bird, though. Just saying. But not every state's bird is the blue hen chicken. That's true. 
It's good to know. And Dryptosaurus <laughs> also spent time on the shore like Delaware shorebirds today. And so having this state dinosaur would be, quote, a reminder of Delaware's ecosystems and how populations, birds, and sea life must be protected, end quote. Yeah, I kind of like that. I, I remember somebody talking about how the California flag has the bear on it mm -hmm. because there used to be a California bear, but it's now extinct and how, you know, they didn't like that. And I was thinking, it seems sort of like a good reminder when you have an extinct animal on a flag that animals can go extinct. So yeah. you should endeavor to maybe prevent that from happening or at least not exacerbate it. <laughs> yeah. So pretty cool over the summer. Sounds like two states got official state dinosaurs. I say sounds like because... I remember the process for Massachusetts involves many rounds, and I couldn't find if Delaware had the same. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, well, it passed the Senate, does it have to get signed by a governor? Mm -hmm. Now, next, it turns out that there are seven missing sculptures from Crystal Palace dinosaurs. Hmm. And by missing, I mean like original sculptures. Oh, really? Yeah. So like they should have been there, but were never put in or they- I think they were put in originally in the 1800s and got lost along the way. Oh, wow. Seven is a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, so there's this new book. It's called The Art Science of the Crystal Palace Dinosaurs. And they found that the original park had 37 original sculptures. And before that, I guess we thought there was only 32. So they thought that there were five two missing. missing? Oh, five missing. Yeah. Turns out seven. Only 29 of the original sculptures are there today, and there's one replica. So there's 30 sculptures total. Hmm. None of these lost sculptures are dinosaurs. Okay, that's good. No big loss. <laughs> no big loss. Well, it, it still is. They're missing a giant deer, two pterodactyls, three anoplotarium, which are llama like, and a paleotherium. Which oh, is, that's a cool one. Yeah. It kind of looks like a pig with a trunk. Well, there's no physical remnants of these sculptures, but there are photos, illustrations, and texts. That's how they figured it out. Yeah. There's a picture of it there. Yeah. <laughs> Where yeah. did it go? Actually, I saw a picture and it, they kind of circled. It's a picture with maybe all seven missing. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Which kind of makes me wonder, and I think made the authors wonder too, like, what else might be missing? Mm -hmm. Well, I know it got moved, right? Because originally it wasn't at Crystal Palace Park mm. where it is now. There was, Crystal Palace was set up, was it Hyde Park or somewhere? It was a lot closer to the center of London mm -hmm. in like a big exhibition. And then people wanted to keep it, but they wanted to open that space up again. So they moved it quite a bit farther away from the center of London to its permanent spot where it is now. Mm -hmm. And then maybe in all that shuffling Maybe. Some of them got left out. Or it could even be that when they started setting it up, they were like, we don't have room for all these in the way we want to lay them out. Could Let's be. leave or, these out of it. I know there's been an issue with, because it's expensive to maintain too. Mm -hmm. Maybe they weren't able to maintain all of them. Yeah. Yeah. You can see how like pterosaurs might be a little more fragile and mm -hmm. they decided like, eh. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know how much they were worried about that. Yeah. I don't know either. Maybe someone will find a letter or something eventually cool. that yeah. explains where these ended up. Or just list everything that was in there. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of maintaining, 
Lottie, which is the Triceratops statue from Louisville, Kentucky, recently got a makeover. And Lottie was part of the 1964 display at the World's Fair in New York. So considerably younger than the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, but still. Yeah, like 100 years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Lottie's been in Kentucky for years. Uh, It went to the Kentucky Science Center in 1979. It was in a parking lot, and then it went into storage in 2008. There were a lot of temperature changes and flooding, which led to cracking, and the tail broke off. Oh, no, Lottie. Yeah. That's like Eeyore. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah. Eeyore's tail was easy to pin back on, though. Oh, yeah. Lottie's a little, takes a little more work. Yeah. The good news is Lottie is restored and now sits on top of the Kentucky Science Center's elevator shaft, and you can see it from the freeway. That seems more appropriate than a parking lot. Yeah. (laughs) It's got a lot of bright colors, orange, blue, and yellow. It costs $55,000 to update. And Lottie, turns out, is well-loved. There's even a website dedicated to Lottie. Though Lottie might get a new name soon because the Science Center recently had a naming contest. Hmm. I like Lottie. I do too. I wonder if Lottie is in the running. <laughs> if it can just win, uh, reaffirm <laughs> its original name. Yeah, maybe. $55,000 sounds like a lot, but depending on what it was made out of mm-hmm. and what exactly was wrong with it, you might end up basically doing more work than if you started from scratch sometimes. like yeah. That's how it seems with the Crystal Palace dinosaurs because they're concrete and they have like rusting metal inside them that's slowly splitting them apart. Yeah. So they have to just, it's it can be really complicated to restore things. Yes, it can. So it's good that they finished it. Hopefully they maintain the paint and whatever other details they have to do so mm-hmm. that it doesn't fall apart again and they don't need to dump as much money next time. <laughs> Sounds like they will if Lottie's got such a prominent place. Yeah. Paint is usually the key. Keep it painted. <laughs> that, that helps a lot. We have some dinosaur media news too, starting with a couple of shows. So NBC is making a new natural history series called Surviving Earth. There's going to be eight episodes and they're going to go into mass extinctions that have happened on Earth and the animals that survived them. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. I, I like the what survived the mass extinction angle rather than what got what wiped out. So instead of focusing on the dinosaurs, well, you probably focus on the dinosaurs for one of them because they survived one extinction. But then the next one, you could focus on the mammals. You got a few extinction events that you could talk about with dinosaurs too. Because mm. there's also, there's the one at the beginning of the Triassic basically that sort of set them off. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the end Triassic extinction when they oh, really like yeah. kicked up into high gear. And there were some minor extinctions in there too that the dinosaurs made it through until the end Cretaceous. And then even then, right? The birds <laughs> made it through. That's true. They did. <laughs> So this is going to be made by Universal Television Alternative Studio and Loud Minds, and they worked on Walking with Dinosaurs, Walking with Beasts, and Primeval. There's no date yet on when this show will come out, but it's going to be documentary style with a lot of digital effects to bring the prehistoric animals and landscapes to life. I hope they do a good job with it. Me too. I think that if they worked on Walking with Dinosaurs, then yeah, probably. True. Yeah. Those are, those are some good credentials. We've been watching that La Brea show, and <laughs> if it was... Well, I like the effects. Yeah. They're, I mean, they, they, they clearly didn't have a budget to do really high-end effects, though, is, I think, the problem. Oh, I think the animals look pretty good, but there's not that many animals. That's true. There's a lot of people. Those shows always lean too far into the people. 
I think they have that problem that Glenn McIntosh and I think Phil Tippett might have talked about too with animating where they don't seem to have any weight to them. Mm. They kind of seem like they're floating a little bit. Oh, I don't remember that. Like floating in the environment. They don't seem to really like plant down into it. Mm. At least that's sort of the way that I saw them. Maybe like there was a a saber-toothed cat that kind of looked like it was... Oh, it just moved a little too smoothly. Yeah, exactly. Because it doesn't take much to sort of break the illusion. Mm. Since you know all these animals are extinct. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The other show is Dinosaur with Stephen Fry. That's a four-part series about dinosaurs in the Jurassic and Cretaceous. And it sounds like it will also be a documentary style with Stephen Fry getting close to the dinosaurs while talking about them and talking with experts about them. Cool. And that's meant to be realistic as well. So sounds pretty good. I think that one might have come out already, but I don't know how you watch it. Mm. We've got a few dinosaur games to talk about, too. We told a listener a while back that we'd talk about this one. You can play Dinosaur Fossil Hunter on Steam. It's a game where you become a real paleontologist and you search for fossils. You dig them up, you study them, then you build your own museum with them. I've only seen the screenshots so far, but it seems pretty cool. If anybody's played, let us know. Yeah, I really wanted to play it and do a review, but... Haven't had a chance yet? I don't have a lot of time for games anymore. Yeah, babies will do that. Yeah. (laughs) Now, GamesRadar published a list of the 10 best dinosaur games. In case you have a lot of time to play games. Some of the games are shorter than others. If you had to guess, Garrett, what games would you think was on this list? Well, I saw the first one, Mm -hmm. Jurassic World Evolution 2. Yeah, (laughs) that one didn't surprise me. That one is another one I bought and then never had a chance to play. (laughs) Maybe one day. Those park builder games are very satisfying. They are. And the fun thing about those Jurassic World ones, too, is the dinosaurs break out. So there's more... You know, like you got to get them back in and oh. all that kind of jazz. Whereas some of the ones where you, I think the ones that are more phone or tablet based, mm-hmm. where it's more, you know, you put the dinosaurs in the park and they just kind of stay in the park and it's more of a collecting game, mm-hmm. aren't quite as fun, I don't think. But Parkosaurus is also on there, which it was satisfying to a point. And Sometimes the dinosaurs do break out, but it's a much more cutesy game than mm-hmm. Jurassic World Evolution. But that one, I had fun playing with it, but there were a lot of limitations I wasn't aware of. Like, you can only get maybe 40 dinosaurs in your park, and I wanted all the dinosaurs. Yeah, there's more than 40 species, right? Yeah. And there's a hard cap at how many dinosaurs. And that was interesting because you were playing it, I think, on Switch, right? Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, maybe it's because Switch doesn't have enough memory or something and it can't handle all of these animals. Yeah, but I looked it up and it was all platforms. Yeah, so so strange. Yeah. uh, I think a big programming miss there. Yeah, it was too bad because I really wanted all the dinosaurs. And then I got to 40 or whatever the limit was and it's like, I guess I'm done with this. Yeah. (laughs) So you're asking me if I could guess the other ones. I would guess, is one of them Turok? No. I always think of that game. It's so old. But that was the first dinosaur game I remember. That did not make it. What else is there? There's, do they include some really popular games that just have a little bit of dinosaur? Or are they all like pretty dinosaur focused? Yeah, they're, some of them are a little dinosaur. I'll give you a hint. Is one of them Red Dead Redemption 2? No. I never found the dinosaurs in that game. Apparently there's a way to like, 
do paleontology and I never found it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think we even looked it up, but we didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, the the hint I'll give you is we used to have a server for this one. Oh, is it Ark? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess that's a dinosaur game. There are a lot of dinosaurs, but there's a ton of other stuff, too. Mm-hmm. And let's see. Path of Titans is a really good one. That's not on this that's list. That's definitely lesser known. Yeah. But, oh, um, one that we played together. Is it the Lego one? Yes. That's the one I was thinking of. Yep. Yeah, it's one of the only games we've finished to 100% completion. And then I think we might have played it again. It that was one so was fun. satisfying. Yeah. And that one didn't take too long. No, it was great. That was a great game. So what else you got? There's a VR game, Jurassic World Aftermath. Hmm. It's set between Jurassic World and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, and you have to try to escape the research facility. That sounds maybe too intense for me in VR. <laughs> it does sound intense. I played like a cutesy cartoony game where there were zombies coming at me and I was like, this is too much. <laughs> the VR makes it so much scarier, even when it's like cartoony that I can't imagine Jurassic stuff in VR. It's too much. Well, going back to cutesy, there's Yoshi's Crafted World. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing that a long time ago. I never got that one, though. That's just because Yoshi is a dinosaur? Yep, that one is. And then there's a few early access games like The Isle, which you can play as a dinosaur or a human. Your goal is to survive as either one. Then there's Prehistoric Kingdom, a theme park management game with dinosaurs, but they also have woolly mammoths, woolly rhinos, and saber-toothed tigers. Yeah, that one's been in development for a while. That's mm -hmm. sort of like the more realistic version of Jurassic World evolution to mm. sort of thing there's also second extinction which is a multiplayer shooter game you shoot dinosaurs okay so that's like the new turok yeah <laughs> there have been a lot of things in between turok and now, yeah that's but, a pretty old game isn't it yeah. yeah for a while that was the only kind of dinosaur game that was around basically was shoot the dinosaurs mm -hmm. but they've gotten a lot more diverse since then yeah, now you can play as a dinosaur in a few games yeah that's way better oh and then there's minecraft jurassic world Hmm. You find DNA for 60 dinosaurs. Oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. So lots of games to choose from if you're looking for dinosaur games. And now we're going to pause for another quick sponsor break. But when we're back, Sabrina will get into our dinosaur of the day. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Zapolosaurus, which was a request from Elrex via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. It was a diplodocoid sauropod that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Nuquén Province, Argentina, in the La Amarga Formation. It looked like other sauropods. It had a long neck and tail and those columnar legs. 
It probably had a long neck that it could swing in an arc-like shape to help it eat a lot of plants from just one spot. It had neural spines that seemed short compared to other diplodocoids. But its caudal, its tail vertebrae, doubled in length in the first 20 vertebrae. Hmm. Really making the most of those vertebrae. Yeah. And being a sauropod, you might have guessed it was herbivorous. The type species is Cephalosaurus bonaparti. It was described by Leonardo Salgado and others in 2006. The fossils were found in a 1995 to 1996 expedition under the direction of Jose Bonaparte. The genus name means Zapala lizard, and it's for the city of Zapala, which is about 50 miles or 80 kilometers from where the fossils were found. You know you're in the middle of nowhere when the nearest city is 50 miles away. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. But that's where you find some of the best fossils. It is, yeah. And then the species name is in honor of Jose Bonaparte, who collected the fossils. The holotype is an incomplete skeleton. There's vertebrae, there's parts of the femur and tibia, pubis, part of a rib, and more. And Cephalosaurus helps show that there was more diversity than previously thought of basal diplodocoids. Some other animals that lived around the same time and place as Cephalosaurus include Amargosaurus, Amargotitanus, another sauropod, Stegosaurs, Pterosaurs, Crocodilomorphs, and mammals. And now for our fun fact, which Garrett mentioned at the beginning of the episode I was doing, and now he's giving me a look like, why am I not doing the fun fact? <laughs> Maybe we need to start doing two fun facts. <laughs> Maybe. This one, uh, it was too fun not to do. I couldn't help it. It's that some dinosaurs had quote-unquote belly buttons. That's weird. It's a pretty fun fact, yeah. Because we always think about dinosaurs hatching from eggs and why well, i don't know if do things that come out of eggs usually have belly buttons they sort of have uh they yeah. have an attachment to the egg just like we have an attachment to the placenta it's i say quote unquote belly buttons because it's not the same as our belly buttons but okay. there are marks to show attachments okay so this comes from a paper Oldest preserved umbilical scar reveals dinosaurs had quote-unquote belly buttons, but was published in BMC Biology by Phil R. Bell and others. And I'll start by saying that developing embryos in egg-laying amniotes, that includes mammals, birds, and reptiles, get their nutrients from membranes, including a yolk sac. Well, not all mammals, right? <laughs> Just a couple mammals. <laughs> egg-laying mammals, yeah. yeah. And before hatching... So again, we're talking about the eggs. The membranes detach and they leave either a temporary or a permanent umbilical scar, also known as the umbilicus. And that is similar to our belly buttons. Okay. So they do have the sort of similar attachments and all that. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as the authors knew, there had been no umbilicus seen in any amniotes from the pre-Cenozoic era. And the Cenozoic is our current geological era. I mean, that makes sense because that doesn't seem like the first thing that would fossilize. Yeah. <laughs> it might be really difficult to spot too. Yeah. Yeah. But especially considering it's usually like all soft tissue around that, right? Because it's going into the GI tract. <laughs> yeah. So like how, why would that fossilize? But this one they saw in Cetacosaurus, which hmm. was from 130 million years ago. This is the really nearly complete specimen that's the one that had the cloaca too, I think. Yes. Yeah. So there's a, a lot you can learn from this one Cetacosaurus specimen. Now it's the 
oldest known umbilicus of an amniote and the first known umbilicus of a non-avian dinosaur. Hmm. This cetacosaurus was close to sexual maturity and age. That's based on the length of the femur. They said the museum wouldn't allow them to do any histology because the specimen is so rare. It's in such good shape. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so don't cut it. Yeah. (laughs) That's what they're saying. But based on having the umbilicus and its age, it probably had this quote-unquote belly button its whole life since it was very close to being mature. I see, yeah. Because the only other explanation would be like, well, maybe it could be a scar from something else Mm -hmm. later in life. Now, most modern reptiles and birds lose this scar within days to weeks after hatching. Hmm. So it must not be nearly as intensive an attachment of what we have because it (laughs) takes a a while. (laughs) It's It's not the most pleasant thing either, the like umbilical stump situation (laughs) we've been up close and personal with it pretty recently it's not my favorite (laughs) but we also we all have our belly buttons for our whole lives we do i don't like thinking about belly buttons they gross me out for some reason (laughs) this is why i'm doing the fun fact about the belly buttons i appreciate that (laughs) now it just because cetacosaurus had this umbilicus doesn't mean all dinosaurs had these umbilical scars Like in reptiles and birds, the umbilical scar varies by species or sometimes it's linked to infections. Mm. So maybe this one had a belly button infection that, oh, I didn't even want to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like the most horrible way you could get an infection. In this case, it didn't sound like it had an infection. We do know a couple other non-avian dinosaur specimens that are mummified like this Cetacosaurus. And they don't show evidence of an umbilicus, like that Edmontosaurus specimen. There's also Leoningosaurus, two well-known ones. But in the case of the Cetacosaurus, it does have this quote-unquote belly button, the umbilicus. And again, the Cetacosaurus specimen, it came from the Jehol group in Liaoning province, China, and it was found lying on its back. And the scales, tail bristles, and the jugal horn, quote-unquote horn, on the cheek were also preserved. Yeah, it's a really cool specimen. Yeah. The scientists used laser imaging, and they found that the cetacosaurus had scales arranged in bands, like modern crocodilians. And again, reptiles don't have a true umbilical cord like mammals. But reptile embryos have a lengthwise gap, which closes over to form the umbilicus. And that's where the yolk sac used to be attached. So you see this evidence, like in lizards, you can see it the way the scales look like a row of paired scales that are larger and different in shape to other scales on the abdomen. That's how you know. Mm, okay. And that's similar in this Cetacosaurus specimen. It's pretty cool. It is. Pretty cool for belly buttons, I guess. I'm glad we're done talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a fun fact. It is fun. I don't know why belly buttons gross me out so much, but... Just it's my own personal belly button. When things touch it, it just makes me super nauseous for some mm. reason. I don't know why. <laughs> it's just how I am. <laughs> Hopefully, these dinosaurs didn't have to deal with that. I yeah, I don't think so. Scales might help give you a little more, you know, stiffness. Mm. Maybe less sensitivity or than some armor. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I had some scales there that make Ew, me feel better. That would look weird. Yeah. <laughs> If you had it your way, you would look pretty strange because you've talked about wanting feathers before as well. Yeah. Although, I'm yeah, skin is nice, I guess. Yeah, you guess. 
<laughs> Serves me pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you so much for listening. If you are not already a patron, then please join our community of fellow dinosaur enthusiasts over at patreon.com slash inodino. We have lots of rewards. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.